Welcome to the Evolved Caveman, where men learn to be successful and happy with your host, Dr. John Schinnerer, as he shares the most impactful ideas and practices for you to get the most from your relationships, your work, and from your life. Now, here's Dr. John. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. John back with another episode of the Evolved Caveman. I think this is episode... I don't know, like 124 or something, which is kind of amazing. And I am really, really excited to have with me today, Doug Knoll. And Doug is right in my sweet spot. So let me give you a little bit of his bio. Doug Knoll was born partially deaf, nearly blind, crippled, and quite intelligent, which doesn't really get him a lot of dates with girls. However, he went on to graduate from Dartmouth, earned his law degree, and became a ferocious civil trial lawyer for 22 years. Then Doug went back to school to become a peacemaker. Since he left his law practice in 2000, Doug has devoted his life to understanding human conflict. His groundbreaking work in de-escalating anger and potentially violent confrontations has transformed the lives of thousands. Doug's an award-winning author of four books. His latest, De-Escalate, was published in September of 2017, now available in four languages and in its second printing. Doug's work carries him from international training to helping people resolve deep interpersonal and ideological conflicts. He's the co-founder of Prison of Peace, in which he spent the last 12 years teaching murderers in maximum security prisons to be peacemakers and mediators. So we have a lot in common. Doug, welcome. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with me. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. I, I love so, your work. I just love your work, I got to say. Well, and yeah, I, I think we could fawn over each other for right. hours because I'm, I'm really, I, I, I really appreciate it when other people, particularly men are doing similar work because to me, it, it doesn't get more important. Right. Exactly. And, and my wife uh, claims that men are the most sensitive of the <laughs> humans. Men are far more sensitive than women in many ways. And, and of course that's completely squashed in childhood. But if you think about it, uh, a million years ago, or even 300,000 years ago, the men had to go out on the hunt, and they had to be so sensitive because they had to know where the animals were. They had to know where the game was. And that took a super high degree of sensitivity to be able to figure out, figure that out. Right. So she claims that men are far more sensitive than women, and it's just that culture has crushed us. <laughs> well, there's, there's research to back that up in looking at neonates or infants um, and look, comparing male to female babies, where the male babies will actually cry more, cry louder, cry longer. And, and it seems like they display more emotion from the get-go. And then I think you're right, then the way in which we're socialized growing up, and it starts about kindergarten or preschool where you start to get into groups of other males. I say it starts at about two years old, 18 months. Well, it can, but you know, the, the thing I have with that is a lot of, a lot of my clients will say, Oh, well, my dad wasn't, you know, super masculine. He was, you know, very nurturing and caring and emotional and, and, and the mom too. So I think parents aren't necessarily let causing me, it, but they can. Let me tell you why I think that. Okay. I'm all about emotions because as a peacemaker, um, obviously, emotions drive conflict. So I've been driven to understand the neuroscience of emotions. And here's, here are a couple of things that are quite surprising. One, we're not born with emotions. We're born with affect. We actually, emotions are cognitive constructs that we begin to con construct at about 18 months of age. And that's when the emotional centers of the brain start to develop, because babies are not born with the inner brain fully developed yet. It takes about 18 months. The problem is that parents invalidate their children's emotions. So remember when you were two years old, it happened to me too. More, more me than anybody because of my disabilities. But you fall over, you skin your knee, you start to cry. And what are you told? Even by Man up. loving parents. Man up. Don't be a sissy. Stop crying. Yeah. You become emotionally invalidated from the time of two years old. And that emotional invalidation goes throughout life. And when you are emotionally invalidated, it's a it's an it's it's an insidious and pervasive form of emotional abuse that research shows leads to comorbidity later in life, addiction, diabetes, cancer, all this stuff, all these horrible diseases later in life relate all the way back to emotion, this kind of emotional abuse in childhood. And parents do that and they're unconscious about it. Yeah. Well, and if I can jump in there, because I think that, you know, you say comorbidity, which makes me think of, you know, a mental health issue plus an addiction issue like depression plus alcoholism or depression plus alcohol, you know, a lot of alcohol drinking. Um, and I think what happens is I, I like the line from Terry Real. He says, you know, that 
the emotions didn't leave us. We left our emotions behind. And, and so we're trying to suppress these emotions and yet we're still human. We still have the emotions. And so we're like, oh, I shouldn't feel this. And so we try to numb them. And so we use alcohol or other substances or what porn or exercise or whatever it is, shopping to numb how we're feeling. And then we feel ashamed for having the emotions. And we're empty inside. So we yeah, and we numb. You can't selectively numb the negative emotions. You got to numb all of them. And and it's my belief that this is all caused by emotional invalidation in early childhood. And instead of validating a child's emotions, parents invalidate. And the reason they invalidate, and this is really interesting, they're doing it unconsciously. They're doing it partly because it was done to them by their parents. So this is yeah. a cycle. But more importantly, they're soothing their own unconscious anxiety that they have around yep. their child's emotions. So it's as if the brain is saying, little boy, if you, ha- you stop crying because I'm really upset and anxious around your crying and I don't want to feel this way. So you stop being the way you are so I can feel good myself. Well, yeah, and I see this in couples too, right? Like I'll tell, you know, the husband, like, you know, I'm trying to get them to validate their wife's emotions. And I said, you know, ask this one question. Like if your wife is venting, ask them, hey, honey, I really want to support you. What would what would be best for me to do in this moment? Do you want me to just listen? Do you want to hug? Or do you want me to try and fix it? And inevitably, most times the wife will say, I just need you to listen. That's right. And And we can't do it. Because what happens is we hear our wife or our partner's pain and suffering or anger or sadness. And if we have any empathy, it comes up in us and it makes us really uncomfortable. And then we go back to trying to fix it because we just don't want to deal with that. We don't know how to deal with that internal dis-ease. That's right. And that's why I have discovered the antidote. Awesome. I'd love to hear. Which is mind-blowing how it works. And there are brain scanning studies that show why it works. That's what's even more amazing. Um, basically what you learn to do, what you can learn to do, and it only, it doesn't take long to learn how to do this is you ignore the words, read the emotions and reflect back the emotions with a simple use statement. So for example, the example of a, of a couple and wife is frustrated, angry, whatever it might be. Husband would say, Oh, love, you're really pissed off. You're frustrated. You don't feel supported. You don't feel appreciated. You feel completely ignored. And you're really sad and you feel abandoned and unloved. She will immediately calm down because she can't help herself because that's the way the brain is wired. And you will build instant intimacy with that woman because you're validating her at a core level. And, And I can't tell you how many women have told me that's what they want. In fact, I've heard women in couples counseling say, like, turn to their partner and say, that would be awesome. Right. And, and the husband will say, or the partner will say something like, oh, yeah, that will never work. Because she just told you it would work. That's right. But, it, but here's the thing. Lieberman, Matthew Lieberman, neuroscientist at UCLA, did a brain, his first brain scanning study on this idea called affect labeling. Uh, was in 2007. I discovered this in a really difficult context. It, it, it's, I mean, the label I would say is it's validation. Like you're validating their feelings. Right? You take your best guess. The technical term in neuroscience is called affect labeling, and it's a categorized as a, a form of implicit emotional regulation. And he did a brain scanning study to find out what was going on. And he his 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 conclusions from what he did with the fMRI studies were absolutely unbelievable. He said, when we label somebody else's emotions with words, Two things happen. Number one, the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, the executive function of our brain, comes back online almost immediately, 30 seconds. And the emotional centers of the brain, primarily the amygdala, diminish in activity at the same time. Which is interesting because if you're left to your own devices, it takes about 20 minutes to get that prefrontal cortex back online. And this does it in less than 30 to, when I wrote my book, it was 90 seconds or less. Publisher couldn't believe, Simon and Schuster wouldn't believe. They might editor couldn't believe it could be done in 30 seconds. No, it's got to be 90 seconds. But really, oh, so- 45 seconds. And I yeah. got a, when I started teaching this back in the early 2000s, I got a lot of pushback. And that's why um, we just, uh, one of the reasons why I took up the Prison of Peace project with my colleague, Laurel Crawford, because I figured if I could teach murderers how to de-escalate violence in prisons using these techniques, then... Who could gainsay the, the, the power? Right. That's exactly what happened. Uh, well, so, I, I mean, it's interesting. I love the idea of co-regulation between partners, right? That I think, you know, it, it used, we used to think of it as, well, if you get 
hijacked by your partner's emotions. You were too enmeshed or you were codependent. And now I think what we're finding is it's impossible not to, if you have any degree of empathy, like that's the most important person in the world to you. So if they're angry, sad, anxious, you're going to necessarily pick up their emotions. And I, I love the idea of helping our partner to regulate their emotions by regulating your own. And here's the other thing that happens. It's not only are you helping your partner regulate her emotions, you are also at the same time regulating your own emotions and developing your own emotional competency. Because the more you affect label, the more you validate her emotional experience, the more you're building a database inside your own brain, which prevents alexithemia, which is the killer in emotional regulation. Alexithemia is the... Yeah, you got to explain that for the listeners. That's a really fancy psychology word. I know, I know, I know. And I'm a peacemaker, not a psychologist. So we're <laughs> But alexithemia, and, I, and the reason that it's important in my work, let me explain what it is first. Alexithemia simply means inability to name emotions. Mm-hmm. And it is a... But we, none of us men have that problem. No, no, no. <laughs> Sorry, that was sarcasm. Exactly. I mean, maybe we can name anger. But yeah. No, yeah, that's it. Five or six other emotions. Anger and nothing. Anger and nothing. So alexithemia occurs when we are in an emotional state and we can no longer access our emotional database. Our prefrontal cortex goes offline and our emotional centers now begin to dominate our behavior and activities. And that's what Goldman called that the amygdala hijack back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And that's what's going on. And in conflict, high conflict that I work in, people are always alexithemic. They're so mad at each other, they'd rather shoot each other with AK-47s that sit down and talk, and they are totally alexithemic, and it's incipient violence. So to get around the alexithemic tendency, all you have to do is label somebody else's emotional experience with a you statement, and not only are you helping them, you're lending them your prefrontal cortex for the time it takes them to get back online, and you are building your own inner strength, emotional strength at the same time. Okay, so what do we men need? And, and I guess it's women too, but this, you know, I kind of focus on men here, but what do we need to get to the point where we can do affect labeling? Because I see a couple of hurdles that we have right from the get-go. That's right. So first of all, it's a very simple skill. It's easy to describe. Let me put it that way. Ignore the words, literally ignore the words. So if wife- wait, wait, so the, it, to back up, I mean, it's first don't get triggered by what's going on. Well, here's the deal. That's right. And if you ignore the words, you're much less likely to get triggered. Mm-hmm. So you ignore those angry words. It's white noise to you. You've heard the angry words before. Why do you need to listen to them? Turn it off. And that two things happen. Number one, when you ignore the angry words, you're much less likely to get triggered. Two, you act, you, you free up bandwidth in your brain to do the rest of the practice. So you ignore the angry words. The second thing you do is you allow yourself to, to read the emotional data field, let's say, of your spouse. Um, and we do this innately. It's an innate skill that every human being has. Culturally, it's, it's crushed because of our implicit bias against emotions and in favor of rationality. But we have the ability to do this. And all you've got to do is sit in silence for a second. And your brain will figure it out. And all of a sudden, into consciousness will come, oh, she's really pissed off. And then the third step is to simply reflect back whatever comes into your head with a simple use statement. Oh, dear, you're really angry. You are really pissed off. Do not ask a question. What are you feeling? Or are you angry? Because remember, she's alexithemic. So if you ask her a question, she can't access her feelings. All she's going to do is get more pissed off. So you're saying alexithymia is a temporary condition for some people. Like when you get angry, you're more likely to be, well, you are alexithymic because you can't access any other emotions, really. It's a subchronic, it's a subchronic condition that... Because I see it as both it, it can a state be. and a trait. Right. right. So, I mean, a lot of men are alexithymic across the board and they just don't have the emotional it's vocabulary. Because, that's right. But it's only because they haven't been trained. Remember, right. I've taken it's doctors. definitely a learnable skill. It's totally learnable. And it's fast. You can master yeah. this in a couple of weeks with, and I'll tell you how to do that. It's well, and, and can I jump in there? Because sure. men that are listening out there, I'm going to throw this challenge out to you and I'm trying to piss you off right here. <laughs> there was a study years ago that showed that they asked how many emotions can you name? Men could name eight on average, which I think is probably a little high, but women were at 17. Yep. So we have to catch up. Right. And it's not that hard. It no. really isn't that hard. You really only need to do this work. You only need to have about 15 words and they yeah. come in layers. And once you understand the, how they break down, it's very easy to remember what they are. And we can go through that really quickly. But the, yeah, key, please. the key is to reflect back the emotion. Now, what are the challenges of this? Number one, 
Can you read the emotions? The answer is yes. All you have to do is pay attention. Number two, you there's a there it takes some courage to start with this because uh-huh. we have been told that emotions are bad, emotions are evil, emotions are weak. To be emotional is not to be a human being. This goes back four thousand years. It's not to be a man or a woman. Women are not permitted to have emotions either. Uh, in many in many many contexts, think about the yeah. business world. Well, in business, definitely. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So, but if they don't have any, well, anyway, we can. Yeah, we, can they're get, in a double bind. There, women. So are. the key here is number one: don't ask questions. Number two: never use an I statement. So this is that old act of listening BS from Thomas Gordon back in the 1960s. Totally yeah. wrong. Uh, Carl Rosenberg, nonviolent communication, totally wrong. Never worked. Will not work. Will never work. And there's no science to support any of that stuff. There is science to support affect labeling. So how do you practice this? Because it's scary in the beginning, mm-hmm. telling somebody what they feel. Because that you're, it's your, you yourself are going to experience in the beginning, it's going to feel like you're being vulnerable. So what you do is you practice in low-risk environments. My favorite place to practice is Starbucks. Go into Starbucks, you're going to order your coffee, you go to the barista, young person there at the counter, and you say something like, you look really happy this morning. And then stand back, and now you've got your lab coat on. And, you're, and this is your lab rat in front of you, and you're going to watch what your lab rat does. You're going to make some observations. And what will happen is all of a sudden, this young person will just suddenly brighten up and not stop chatting you up. Because you're the first customer that's come in in years and validated the emotions of this person. Well, I remember doing this at a, we were my fiance, who's a, another emotion expert, um, which is a little bit annoying because I'll do this with her and I'll say like, gee, dear, you look really angry or you seem really angry. And she'll be like, I'm not angry. I'm frustrated or I'm not Perfect. angry. I'm resentful. You know, like she's Perfect. getting more precise. Perfect. Um, she says, I'm not we, angry. I'm frustrated. Then you come right back. Say, oh, you're really frustrated. Yeah. And, and so we were at dinner, uh, in Guerneville, I think. And this waitress came up and we both looked at her and we were like, Oh shit. Like you could tell by looking at her, she was angry, stressed and exhausted. Yep. And we said, you look really stressed and tired. And she was like, yeah, I just had this asshole customer over here. She got super drunk and blah, blah, blah. I told us the whole story. And after a few minutes, like we had calmed her down and brought her back to a good spot where we had a good time with her that night, despite this terrible experience she had with the customer minutes earlier. Perfect. And that's the other place to go to practice this stuff is because you're going to see servers and restaurants today are really stressed out because they're overwhelmed. Oh, yeah. And all you have to do is look at them just like you did, like you and your fiance did. Say, oh, you're really angry. You're really frustrated or you're really stressed out. And you'll get the best service you've ever gotten in your life from that person because they felt emotionally validated. So what I tell my students is to do this three times a week for three weeks. And now all you're doing is putting your little, little toe in the shallow end of the swimming pool and trying it in socially safe, non-risk environments where if you screw up, you're not going to embarrass yourself. And what's going to happen is as you observe people responding to these emotional labeling that you're doing, this validation, it becomes a self-affirming practice because you see, wow, this really works. And the other Mm -hmm. thing you see is that you cannot make mistakes. In your example, it was perfect. Oh, honey, you're really angry. No, I'm not. I'm just really frustrated and pissed off. Yeah. Oh, you, you don't feel appreciated. I was close. <laughs> no, it's not even close. She is angry. But yeah. She can't access that. Yeah. So what you're doing is you see you're really frustrated. You're really pissed off. You feel completely disrespected and ignored and unappreciated. Yeah. And that really pisses you off. Yeah. You nailed it. Yeah. So if somebody corrects you, that's a good thing. And you just come back with a correction. And, and, you, and, you, and you go in layers. So let me talk. We talked about touch on this a minute ago. Let me talk about layers very quickly. Mm-hmm. Six layers of emotions. No emotion comes all by itself. There are right. always three or four or five emotions underneath every emotion. So the top layer, of course, is going to be the anger emotions, which could be anywhere from raw rage and hatred all the way down to a mild irritation or annoyance. Frustration would be is part of the anger l- layer. Family. Right. Below that, you're going to, these are not really emotions, but they work so well, I include them. And in these are called what I call the dignitary feelings. So being treated, feeling that you've been treated unfairly, not being appreciated, not being listened to, being ignored, not being supported, um, things like that. Mm-hmm. And beneath that, fear emotions. So you can go from terror all the way to down to anxiety. Anxiety is a fear of a future event. So you have fear, all kinds of fear, scared, frightened, 
You got to use it carefully because people don't ever, ever admit that. Yeah. And by the way, I try to underestimate the degree of intensity of emotions for most people. Right. So then that's, that, that's the third layer. Then the layer underneath that is shame, guilt, humiliation, uh, shame, guilt, embarrassment, humiliation is underneath that. Then underneath that, sadness and grief. And then underneath that, abandonment. You feel abandoned and you mm. feel completely unloved and you feel unlovable. That's that bottom one is really what triggers just about everything else. So when I see raging anger, I know at the bottom it's feeling abandoned or feeling unloved. Whether or not I can get there or not is all contextual. Where am I? Who am I talking to? What am I trying to achieve? What does this person need? And am I able to go to that level of intimacy without creating other problems? So as a peacemaker, I've got to be thinking about this. So yeah. if I if it were my spouse or my child, I could go there naturally. If it was a business colleague. I probably wouldn't go there unless it was a, a close business colleague that I right. had a relationship with. But the key is you start at what presents most obviously. So let's say anger. You start with anger. So the first thing you're going to say is you're angry. Yeah. And then you got Then you're going to just, just feel in to, where is this coming from? Oh, you feel unappreciated. You feel ignored. You've been disrespected. Yeah. And you're a little bit sad because you feel betrayal. Yeah. And that really pisses you off. Yeah. And you're anxious about it because you don't know what to do. You're concerned. Yeah. And then you can say, and you're a little embarrassed because you're not handling it well. Yeah. And at the bottom, you feel like you've been completely abandoned. Yeah. And then the tears start. Hmm. So how put this into play for me? Like, so I'm, I can see this in, you know, like interpersonal work, like that work couples work. What about like, uh, like a Palestinian and an Israeli that have been fighting for 20 years? Okay. So there are, there are, uh, if I just have, let's say today I have a small group of Palestinians and Israelis who, who have agreed to come together and talk. I will teach them how to do this. And I will teach them a rule that was invented in a 14th century French monastery, which is, you cannot, you cannot earn your turn to talk until you reflected back the emotions of the person who spoke before you. Mm. And in fact, we teach this in the prison work as part of, our, part of our training. So they learn how to earn their turn. And as the mediator or facilitator, since they've never done this before, it's my job to coach them and help them mm-hmm. learn how to do this. But as soon as they start doing it, the whole dynamic changes. And like I said, I've worked for 12 years in some of California's roughest prisons. <laughs> training guys coming out of gangs and women too. We started in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world back in 2010. And this is one of the first skills we taught these people and it completely transformed them. And they, and they did, they did amazing work. They've stopped gang riots. They've stopped rapes. They've stopped all kinds of violence. We get letters from a warden saying as a result of prison of peace, you know, the violence has gone down dramatically. We've, we've uh, over a thousand, probably three or four thousand of our students have been released, all lifers and long-termers over the last 10 years, especially the last five years. Is the, we've gotten s- some more common sense around sentencing and not one instance of recidivism or reoffending. Wow. Not one. That's impressive. Yeah. And they all tell me, if I had learned these skills 20 or 30 years ago, I wouldn't be in prison right now. So I say, if I can teach a murderer to be a peacemaker and teach a a murderer how to be emotionally competent, what can I do for you? Mm -hmm. It works. It works. And so what about if what about if you have a murderer who's also a psychopath or a sociopath who doesn't have empathy and can't pick up the feelings of someone else? Those are the kind of people that we have prisons for. Okay, just curious. There is a certain small group of people who have their brains are so damaged. Mm-hmm. That there, that there is no hope of recovery, and there are danger. Because that's one of the big questions in psychology: Can we teach a psychopath empathy? Well, okay, psychopathy, as you know, encompasses a, a continuum of right. behavior. I'm talking about people who, who, if we if we scan their brains, we find that they have lesions in their brain, or they have really small amount of brain mass. Um, who's the guy down in L.A.? There are two guys down in L.A. One at USC, and one uh, has a private practice where he's doing PET scans. Oh, uh, you're talking about Daniel Amen? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. But anyways, what they're showing, okay. their brain scanning studies show that the criminal brain, the psychopathic brain or the sociopathic brain is very, very, very different 
than um, normal brain. In fact, in one of the talks I give, I take I look show the brains of the uh, back in the when we had those school shooters and looking at their brains, and they're t- completely different than a normal brain. There's nothing you can do about that. You, yeah. I mean, so yes, there are. There's a certain population that probably this will not work for. But so you're saying that, but the majority of people that you've worked with that are murderers in prisons are not psychopaths. It no. sounds like no. I'm just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like I remember working with a guy that got jumped into a gang at 12 was on heavy drugs by 14 was robbing liquor stores with a shotgun at 15 and ended up spending most of his adult life in prison. And, you know, one of the questions I had is psychopath or just wrong place at the wrong time and a product of his environment. Yep. It's the latter. Yeah. For the most part. And I, I, like I said, I've trained thousands of these people and there isn't one of them that I wouldn't have at my dinner table once I've trained them. Yeah. Um, now, there, yes, there are people that are that already have serious brain injury. There can just stuff that's just not working right. But that's not that's not most people. And the gangbangers. I worked in Corcoran State Prison till the pandemic. That's where I was really doing a lot of work, working on level level four yard, which is max maximum security and a uh, hundred feet from Charles Manson's cell, training guys who were coming out of gangs. They were going to gang debriefing unit. Mm-hmm. And the stories they told, I mean, you just, you just, you just, that was the common story. Yeah. You know, well, and it's funny, you you know, when you're talking about those six layers and at the bottom is feeling unloved and abandoned, abandoned. And, and, and I think they often feel that way from their family. So they're looking right. to replace so that feeling of family and the gang does a good job of that. Well, at some level. Yeah. And then they realize they get smart and they realize where was my gang when I got convicted? Where was my gang to pay my legal bills? Where's, where was my gang? To support me while I was in prison, or you know, I, the, what I saw with this a man that I was dealing with was that he rose up the ranks so high that the fear in him followed because he wasn't sure if he was going to be offed because someone in his gang wanted to take his place in the hierarchy. And, and you know, that's part of the gang violence in prison. I ended up training one of the guys who is a co-founder of the Aryan Brotherhood, mm-hmm. and. Uh, he turned out to be an incredible mediator. Well, and you know, the funny thing is my experience with men who are in this position are a lot of them are very intelligent and, you know, not the few that I've worked with are not highly educated because they, you know, kind of drop out of the educational system prior, but very smart and very sensitive. That's like right. they feel things deeply. That's right. And, and, and I, a lot of people I worked with have earned their college degrees, their master's degrees, and in a few cases, their PhDs in maximum security prisons. Yeah. These people are smart. But they, I mean, the, the funny thing is, you know, I think men are very sensitive. I think we do feel things deeply and nobody teaches us how to deal with that. That's right. And that, that is my mission. Yep. To train men and women how to become emotionally competent by learning to listen to and reflect back emotions. I call it learning how to listen other people into existence. And that skill, I believe this is the foundational skill of life. When you master this skill, and it's not hard to master, when you master this, everything changes. For example, in my marriage, this is my second marriage. We've been married for, we've been together now for 15 or 17 years. We never have arguments. We use these skills on each other. Mm -hmm. It's the most amazing relationship I've ever had. I didn't think that happiness was even possible at yeah. this level. And it's because we both, we, 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 we use these skills and we never argue and we, and we're not yeah. suppressing, we're not passive aggressive. It's not. And like- I would, I would absolutely agree with you. I mean, I, I'm in my second relationship um, after my first marriage and the relationship I have now is light years beyond what I thought possible. Yeah. And then we use our tools. We use the That's tools right. that we teach to other couples. So, so the so the, 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 the I, I think the challenge is that you and I have gone through the journey of self growth and self development and what it was painful for me. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of work I had to do on myself, but it was worth it. And and I would talk to any any man who is listening, saying, "You probably are feeling a lot of inner pain. You don't feel like <laughs> you don't feel like you're being understood you unless know? you're drunk. What? Unless you're drunk." Unless you're drunk. And then the pain goes away for a minute. <laughs> but then you wake up with a hangover and it starts all over again. Yeah. Because you're feeling the shame. Yep. It, I'm here to tell you that there is a path out of that. 
Yeah. It's not that difficult. You just have to have the courage to take the first step. And it does take courage. It does. There's it, no I think it's scary as hell for most men. That's right. It was scary for me. It was scary for me. Well. You know, I mean, nothing intimidates me. But that was that was a big journey. But black belt is externalizing. I mean, like that's, that's right. dealing with someone outside of yourself. I think what we're talking about here is a journey inside yourself, into your heart and your mind. Mm-hmm. And that's scary AF. Like, I, I mean, that's for right. most people, that's the last place they want to go. And yet it's really not that bad. It really isn't. You just have it's to, doable. It's doable. And with a little bit of coaching and a little bit of help, you don't need it. You don't need to go to counseling or therapy or Go to some fancy place out in the desert somewhere to, you know, drive. Do ayahuasca? I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but it is, it's just not that difficult. The problem is just, you just got to learn to overcome the programming that was put into you at two years old. And, and so. Overcome that, then it's. It, yeah. And, and one of the things I'll talk about is I, I think, you know, because to me, the stoicism that we're taught, we're socialized as men is one of the biggest problems that we have. Don't feel. That's right. And, and so I'll, I'll, you know, say, look, when you're growing up middle school, high school, if you show too much sadness or fear, someone will say something like stopping such a pussy. Don't be a little bitch. Don't be a little girl. And that's all the, the feminine. Right. And so it hurts. You're embarrassed. So you jump back in the man box on the other side. If you show too much joy, love, romanticism, flamboyance, excitement, someone will say, dude, don't be so gay. Don't be a fag. Right. You're like, oh, I don't like that. That hurts. I'm going to jump back in the man box. And so we're left with three things that we can publicly display without fear of embarrassment. I would say it's lust, stress, because if I tell you, Doug, I am so stressed, it says it implies I'm busy and important. And the big one, some degree of anger. That's right. And so yeah. all of our emotions get funneled through that anger lens. Right. And notice how in each of those examples you gave, it, these were emotionally invalidating statements. You were being- Well, I, yeah, I would- they're, Mock it. I mean, it's not just emotionally validating. It's almost punitive for well, daring it, to show it's emotion. It's judgmental and it's critical. Uh-huh. And the reason that this is happening is because the person who's making that emotionally invalidating statement is anxious, yep. internally anxious around your emotional expression because that person doesn't know how to manage his anxiety. And so all he wants to do is get rid of whatever emotional yep. experience you're having so he doesn't have to feel his anxiety. He does that by putting you down. Yeah, your emotion makes them feel uncomfortable. That's right. And so the antidote to that is to ethic label the guy who put you down. Oh, you're really yeah. you're feeling really anxious around the fact that I'm really happy. You're feeling a lot of anxiety. Yeah. You're scared. Or you're feeling really uncomfortable that I'm crying you're right now. You're really uncomfortable. And it scares you a little bit and you feel and you feel like you you you're not appreciated and you're feeling ignored. And my crying might make you feel like you want to cry. <laughs> I remember there was a man I talked to once who said yeah, I, you know, I would really like to, you know, kind of deal with these, my own emotions, but I feel like it's a scab that if I scratch or pick at it, it's going to start bleeding and it's never going to stop. And the fear there is I'm not going to be able to manage my emotions outside of the house or at work. So, so the fear is that emotions will annihilate us. Uh-huh. Go through this state of annihilation. They will take over. They will take over. The fact of the matter is they won't. Biologically, biophysiologically, emotions will not last more than three, three to four minutes. And let me talk about crying. People really put down crying as being a bad thing. It is the brain's fail-safe device for protecting you against brain injury. And crying is the way that the brain releases neurochemicals into the brain to reset your circuit breakers because it's been overstressed. You suppress crying, you're killing your brain. When I love the idea that there's cortisol, the stress hormone, in your tears. So it's actually a physical release of stress. And that's why, for example, sadness and grief are so important. Because what happens in sadness and grief, especially at the loss of a loved one, is that your brain is helping you get out of the relationship addiction. I mean, I say that. But when we have a relationship with somebody, a dog or a cat or a spouse or a child or whatever, and that relationship goes away because somebody dies... We have all these neural circuits that are based on dopamine and serotonin and oxytocin that feed us like a drug. And when that stimulus is no longer there, it's as if there's a heroin withdrawal. Right. Working with same it. area of the brain. Exactly the same area. Love, cocaine, and Triad. money or heroin. Absolutely. Yeah, it's all in the stride. It's all in the same area of the brain. And, and what happens is, what happens is the reason we have to cry and we have to feel the grief and the sadness is to allow the brain 
to do two things. One, to reset all of that, all those neural circuits and to prepare you for the next relationship. Well, and, and I really like the idea that every emotion exists for a purpose. Right. And so if you can get to the purpose and appreciate it for that purpose, I think we can allow it, label it, and then let it go more quickly as opposed to what most men do that I normally see is they're, they resist it. They're like, oh, I shouldn't feel sad. I, I'm a man. I don't want to be a pussy. Right. And that's problematic because it you can't do that with emotions. It will come, they will come back bigger, louder, stronger and bite in the ass. Um, and you know, I, I think sadness, for example, exists. Part of the reason it exists beyond what you've said is I think it gives us time and space to reflect on how we've behaved, how others have behaved. How do we want to show up? What can I improve where I, I really think that if we didn't have sadness, we wouldn't take the time to reflect on a lot of those things. That's correct. Um, I, I want to share with you and the audience uh, uh, some martial arts training I got that really shifted everything for me. So after I got my secondary black belt, my teacher said, you're done here. You're an arrogant asshole trial lawyer. <laughs> no, <laughs> Thanks, I'm teach. not teaching you anymore. You're too dangerous to yourself and to everybody else. And he was right. He said, go learn Tai Chi. And when you master Tai Chi, come mm. back, I'll continue to train you. Well, you never mastered Tai Chi, so it was a death sentence. But here's the thing about, I did start studying Tai Chi. The first thing I realized was Tai Chi is the oldest of all martial arts. All martial arts come from Tai Chi. Second, it is the most vicious, violent martial art I have ever seen and ever mm -hmm. learned. I mean, it is amazing. You see these old people doing the floating and mm -hmm. uh, every single one of those moves is a killing move. But here's the paradox of Tai Chi, which I think men should really listen to carefully. Soft to be strong, vulnerable to be powerful. If you want to be strong and powerful, be soft and vulnerable. And I love Tai that. Chi, boy, there is some amazing truth to that. Because I was stiff and rich. I'm a big guy. I'm like you, big guy. And, you know, power through everything. It took me years to internalize that paradox and realize the truth of it. If I want to be strong and powerful, I have to be soft and vulnerable. And that does not mean that anybody's going to take advantage of me. Well, and there's a study that I love that speaks to that, that um, they had people get up and present on like a mistake that they had made or something that was embarrassing. So a vulnerable presentation. And then they had other participants in the audience watching and they, they would check in with them afterwards. What was your experience when you're presenting versus what was your experience when you were watching a presenter be vulnerable, you know, share something shameful or embarrassing. And the experience when you're presenting afterwards is oh my God, what did I just do? Like, I just shared the darkest secret. Like, I'm right. so embarrassed. This is awful. And then when they're in the audience watching someone else do it, the, the experience is, the perception is, oh my God, that was so courageous. Like, I am so connected. I feel connected with this person by that vulnerability. Right. And, and that is such a powerful dynamic. Right. Now, I, I don't think we can go around being vulnerable all the time. I think we have to strategically and wisely pick our spots. You've got to be discerning. But, right. but, but here's the thing. If you come from a stance of being soft and vulnerable to be strong and powerful, and that's kind of where you, you start from, you can decide, you can set your boundaries really appropriately. I mean, if some guy's going to come at me, actually, I will be soft and soft and vulnerable because in Tai Chi, you take the other person's energies and you know, use it against them, use it against them. Uh, so, I don't, you know, that's why they that's why that teaching is there. You never use your own energy in in Tai Chi. It's always somebody else's energy. Mm -hmm. And you just learn how to do that. But that doesn't mean that you're a pushover. That doesn't mean that you that you take crap from people. That, But it, what it does mean is you don't have to hold yourself in this really rigid stance with big walls around you. Say, don't get it. You can't come in here. It's too I'm not going to let you in. It's too dangerous to let you in. And that's the teaching way. The old John Wayne, rugged individuals, which was all, by, by the way, a big myth. The yeah. term rugged individualist was coined in the 1920s. <laughs> Never, there was never a rugged individualist in, in, in the development of America. Never. You had these crazy people who had very low so serotonin levels <laughs> go out and explore the West, but the settlers all had to cooperate. If they didn't cooperate in small villages for barn raisings and harvests and stuff like that, they all died. So there is no such thing as a rugged individual. Well, and, and that's the, I mean, you know, it, it fascinates me. Like you take, go, go back to philosophy and look at Rousseau talking about, you know, Leviathan and the, the right. savage nature of man. Like what would, what would we be right. if 
we didn't have laws and society. And his belief was that we would just devolve into murdering rapists, thieves. And, and then, you know, Dr. Keltner at Cal recently came out with born to be good. And his whole argument is that no, we've evolved to be cooperative, altruistic, to help each other out. Because if we don't, we can't live in a society. We trust erodes. And then we are just a group of individuals and it doesn't work for us. Think about evolutionary biology. We're a tribal people. Our species have no fangs, no claws, no weapons of any kind. How is it that we were able to dominate the planet now to the detriment of the planet in many ways? But how is it that humans were able to thrive and survive when so many other animals couldn't? And the difference was we learned how to cooperate. Mm-hmm. And we could take our biomass and we could, bring it, we could collect a lot of biomass really quickly. But just by forming teams and going out on hunting teams, hunting parties. Biomass goes from one to six, 600% increase in biomass in two minutes. No other, no other species can do that. And whoever has, in, in evolutionary biology, whoever has the most biomass wins. Mm-hmm. And humans could, and, that, and so the Hobbesian view of the world and the need for the Leviathan, the overpowering government to control these urges, that was all based on a flawed view of human nature. Right. And that flawed view goes all the way back to Plato and even before Plato that said that. Uh, I love that you can go with me to play with, with Hobbes. That is awesome. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, because you have to understand, I, from my perspective, as a peacemaker, I need to understand. It's, it's critical that I understand how, what pe- beliefs people bring into uh-huh. conflict. And if they're, if they're having a Hobbesian view of the world, you know, which is a flawed view of the world, or maybe they are, maybe they bought into the myth of rationality because we're not. Oh. You know, it just it makes me think you got to check out Jared Clifton's work on primal world beliefs. And I, I can send you some information on that. But it's all about this. It's like, is the world mostly good or bad? Is the world mostly safe or dangerous? Because it does it. There are beliefs that we have that are relatively relatively stable. They're somewhat difficult to change. We're trying to figure out how to change them. It's really new research, um, but it's amazing stuff. Good. My point being that we have the innate capacity to cooperate. We also have the innate capacity to violence, but that doesn't mean that we're violent people. The, 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 the most important insight that I have come across and which really shifted everything in my life was to realize that we're 98% emotional and only 2% rational. And that's not me talking. That's Antonio Damasio, neuroscientist. Yeah, I was going to say that's Damasio. Right. We are, not, we are not thinking animals who feel. We are feeling animals who think. Every now and then. And even then. Two <laughs> percent of the time. Talking about bounded rationality. Within a very narrow range, we can be rational. But outside of that, we are totally emotional. And even all our decisions are emotionally based. For this reason. I completely agree. Yeah. And here's the reason for the audience. Think about it. How would you know to apply critical thinking skills or algorithms or logic or processes to a problem unless you had an emotional response to the environment that told you that there was a problem out there? (laughs) You will well, recognize that problem. At its most base, at its most basic, emotions are an approach or avoid system. That's right. They tell us what to what's what do we want to approach, what do we want to avoid. Right. And we need that valence, that feedback, in order to know what what to eat, what to do, how where to drive, where to go, without. how to make a decision. That's right. How do we yeah. even begin to comprehend our environment unless we have emotion? And that's why they're trying to put emotional systems into AI now, because one of the flaws with AI was that there was no approach avoidance system that was reliable. I, I studied that. I was looking at the other day at emotional um, uh, emotional algorithms, and there are, there's no way they're ever going to be able to do. But here's the thing: emotional systems, the most the, the most efficient emotional system on the planet is the human brain. Yeah. AI will never, ever, ever be able to duplicate that because emotions are tied intrinsically into the physical body. Mm-hmm. Because we have this thing called interoception, which is our physical feelings yep. that interprets. Then we have affect, which are the biophysiological responses that we're born with. And then on top of affect, from affect and interoception, we create these cognitive constructs called emotions. There's no AI in the world that will ever be able to duplicate. So are you a fan of Lisa Feldman Barrett? Over oh, absolutely. I love her to death. She, can, she, re, she filled in the blanks. I, yeah. I studied Lieberman's work and said, okay, that why, that's why this works. And then Feldman Barrett explains why in her, in her theory of uh, constructed emotions, so, why this all yep. fits together the way it does. She's brilliant. 
It, it was funny because I did some work with Paul Ekman a few years ago and I asked him what he thought about her and he was not a fan, no. which makes sense because her work undermines his whole lifetime. Of- Here's, I'm not a fan of Ekman's either. He did some brilliant work in early in his career, but then he got off track. And I, I've seen him, I've been to conferences where he's taught and, and listened to him and read his stuff and he's old school. Well, I think he started the whole thing. I mean, you know, back in the late 60s, there was no research on emotion because it was such a squishy topic. He he really, he sort of got into it. I mean, a lot of his work. He began the whole thing to me. I'm not sure that he began it, but he was certainly a a big influence and still is. But there are people who look that you can go back to uh, research going back. In fact, I've got a, a book called The History of Emotions. And it's the history of the study of emotion going all the way back to the Renaissance. And people have studied emotions in different ways. It's just, it was just never mainstream because for many, until we got into neuroimaging and we really could understand what the brain was doing, it was all subjective guessing. Yeah. We're looking at behavior and now we're trying to infer logically what's going or on. Or looking at facial expressions or yeah, yeah looking at, and yeah. That, and that's why Freud was wrong. Physiological responses. Early, typical, early, late 19th century, early 20th century, people who were thinking about theory of mind, were, they're all wrong. Freud was totally wrong. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. But wrong. Well, yeah, I would say Ekman was the beginning of the emotion, like emotion research in psychology, yeah. I guess. I think, you know, there was philosophers looking at it. There was authors. There was, you know, but you go to dilettantes. You go to Feldman Barrett, and I mean, she makes a, an extremely compelling case. Yeah, I... Emotions are cognitive constructs. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, so, yeah, well, we could geek out for hours. I know. <laughs> I love this stuff. And I, it's so, not yeah, like I get to talk about this at this level because so many there is just so few people who study this stuff. And then, yeah, it's fun. I, I agree. Um, and, and I really, really appreciate the work that you're doing, um, particularly the work in prisons. I, I think that's courageous work, honestly. Well, thank you. It is. It's it's difficult work. And but it's work that once you start working with these incarcerated populations, it's work you cannot you cannot not do. Yeah. Well, I could see it to be very rewarding as well. It is. It's very satisfying to to watch, to hear the stories about a transformation from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students who apply, applied. They were very skeptical, but did what we told them to do. And as a result of that, their lives completely changed. Uh, And I've got so many stories of just amazing transformations that have occurred. And I mean... Some of them are bad. I mean, like, well, bad in the sense that our system's really screwed up. Yeah. One of our guys just got out earlier this year after serving a 26-year sentence, wrongfully convicted. Oh, man. And he's got a lawsuit going against the LAPD, and he's already been awarded $5 million from the state of California. People lied. He was a 14-year-old kid, Hispanic kid, in the barrios of L.A., wrong place, wrong time. And the cops picked him up and they couldn't find anybody to pin it on. And he didn't have anybody to support him and had a lousy public defender. And he was put away 30 years to life. And the Innocence Project picked him up and found out that it was all a big lie. Amazing. Years. Tragic. Yeah. Yeah, What amount of money can make up 26 years? You can't. But he said the prison of peace skills really helped him a lot. Hmm. Um, Well, let me, you know, we got to wrap up here, unfortunately. Let me ask you this. What should I have asked you that I did not? <laughs> what did I leave at, out? What did I forget? At the level at the level that you and I work at, we did a pretty good job covering at a 50,000 foot level m- the concepts I'm talking about. I think the one thing that, and we, we've said this before, but I think I want to reiterate it, is hope. Mm. If you're a man and you have grown up in a typical family, dysfunctional family, 96% of all families are emotionally dysfunctional. And you grew up in, and I grew up in a dysfunctional family, everybody, there's no such thing. I mean, very few families are functional, emotionally functional. And you're living a life that you don't feel is as fulfilling or satisfying as you expected it to be. And it's very disappointing. And you're in a relationship with maybe a person that you love, but the intimacy is only, has only gone to a certain level and you've hit a, a floor. There's hope. You can change. It's not that difficult. You just have to have the right tools and the right knowledge. And the knowledge is out there. Neuroscience is completely upended. Everything that we thought about human nature that was true 
And neuroscience is saying everything that we thought about human nature is not true. In fact, we're completely different than what theologians and philosophers have said we are. And with that, armed with that knowledge and the skills that derive from that knowledge, you can find true happiness. You can find true intimacy. You can find true inner peace. And you can become even more powerful and effective and influential than you ever could possibly conceive. All you have to do is tap into the hidden genius of your emotions in the appropriate Yeah, I think that's very well said. Thank you. And I would argue that the true intimacy is a big foundational pillar of true happiness. Absolutely. Um, so let me, for those people that are interested in following up with Doug, you can reach Doug at Doug at Doug Noll, N-O-L-L, dot com. And Doug, you mentioned that you had a web page yeah, specifically for our listeners. For everybody who's listening, I created a special web page for you all. I'm going to give you a bit.ly link. It's not my web page link, so make a note of this. Um, Doug Noll, D-O-U-G-N-O-L dot C-O, not dot com, dot C-O forward slash evolved caveman. And that will lead you into my website. And there are a lot of resources from free to expensive <laughs> that you can tap into depending upon what you want to do and how you want to explore this stuff. And there's a ton of, I've written a ton of articles on all sorts of things like that we've talked about and touched on today. And it's all there for you. So go to dugnoll.co slash evolved caveman and just start your exploration and start your journey there. And I'm always available by email. I'll even jump on a Zoom call with you. I don't, I'm, I'm not about the money anymore. I'm about service. I love that. Helping men go through the journey that I've had to go through, and obviously, John, that you've gone through, to get, help people grow. Because the more men that grow, that means the children behind them will grow just as well. I think it creates a, a better world. And, and I think that, that that idea of being of service is another foundational pillar of happiness. Yes. Um, so, Doug, I... You know, again, for those listeners, the book is Deescalate. Check out the book. Doug, thank you so much. This was, I mean, this kind of fills my intellectual and emotional bucket for the week. So I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. And, uh, you know, we can always have another conversation. So fantastic. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to put that on the books. I would love that. Yeah, next, next time I'm up in the Bay Area, I'll, I'll give you a call and we'll go out and have some coffee. Fantastic. All right. And for you listeners, please remember to like, review, and share with people that you think this would be helpful to. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode of The Evolved Caveman. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Evolved Caveman Podcast. If you like what you've heard, support us by subscribing, leaving reviews, and sharing the podcast with friends and colleagues. For the latest, most powerful tools to connect with like-minded men, join the Facebook group at The Evolved Caveman. Follow Dr. John on Instagram at The Evolved Caveman, all one word, or join the email list by visiting guidetoself.com. 